theyeshiva.net. Today we're going to begin learning a sicha by the Lubavitcher Rebbe on Parshas Va'era. Be'ezer Hashem, we're going to continue it in the next class as well. This is a talk, an address, a shir that the Rebbe presented during the Fabrengen of Shabbos, Parshas Va'era, Tovshin Lamed Aleph. That's Shabbos Ve'era, 1971. 1971. That's uh, 50 years ago. Tavshin Lamed Beis is 50 years ago, so this is Tavshin Lamed Aleph, 51 years ago. And it's published in the Kutei Sichas, volume 16, Parshas Ve'era. If you open your source sheets, you could see the text inside. It begins on page 47 in the Lekut Esichis and in the source sheets. It's in Yiddish, but as usual, I will translate and try to elucidate to the best of my ability. Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach. Before we begin, I'm going to share a story. And the reason I'm sharing the story is, not just to begin with a story, <laughs> which is nice, but the reason is because this story is going to be explored in, in this shir, in this sicha of the Rebbe. The story is going to be explored in, in great detail and depth. So therefore, I want to first share the story as an opening, as an introduction. And it's generally a story that's, that's meaningful, it has a lot of layers of meaning, and it's significant. This is a letter that was written by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's known as the Rebbe Rayatz, the Rebbe Rebbe Yisivitzchak of Lubavitch who passed away in 1950, the Rebbe's father-in-law. He passed away, Yud Shvat, Tov Yud, 1950. And he wrote this letter, and it's published in the back of the Nusach Chabad, uh, in the back of the, of the Chabad Sedurim, Siddur Tehillus Hashem, they have a Koivetz Mechtavim, a bundle of letters by the Rebbe Rayatz about saying Tehillim. Thank you. And over there, this letter is printed and I want to share with you the story that the Rebbe shares, the Rebbe Rayat shares. He writes in this letter, it's obvious, it's clear, that simple Jews, simple Jews here mean earnest, earnest, genuine Jews who have pure faith and they say Tehillim with sincerity. They participate and come to hear the Shi'urim, the classes of learning Torah. Together with friends, they fulfill the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael with love and with joy. They are the the shashuyim of Gan Eden. They are the shashuyim means they are the pleasure and the delight of souls in, in paradise. And the greatest tzaddikim, the greatest rebbes, uh, feel so much pride when looking at them. The Baal Shem Tov, the holy Baal Shem Tov, had a custom, he was Makarev. He was very close. He used to bring close and he showed a lot of affection to Jews that you would call simple Jews who feared God and he loved them dearly. And everybody knew about this passion of his, this lifestyle of his. In fact, this was one of the real, one of the biggest reasons that the circle of the Baal Shem Tev, expanded among the masses in such a short time. How did the Baal Shem Tov have such success? As we know many stories about this. So one of the real reasons was because of his 
his kinship, his closeness to all types of Jews. But he had some great Talmidim, students, who were tzaddikim, who were ga'inim, they were great scholars, and their holy mind couldn't easily digest this. And even though the Baal Shem Tov sent them many times to learn various aspects of life, about sincerity, bitachin, emunah pshuta, emunah zchacham, emunah tzaddikim, avas to learn about sincerity, about trust, about simple faith, belief in the sages, belief in tzaddikim, love of Jews from simple people, they couldn't digest this type of behavior, especially that they should also do it. Even the Baal Shem Tev doing it was difficult for them, but they, for them to do it was even more difficult. And the reason is because there was just this attitude, like there still is, you know, holier than thou, you have a Jew who's so simple and not very learned and seemingly illiterate and uneducated, and the Baal Shem Tev had such a passion for them and such a feeling of closeness to them. There was a custom by the Baal Shem Tev that the guests that used to come to him would eat at his table during two meals of the three meals of Shabbos. Because one meal was designated only for his closest students, known as the Chavraya Kadisha, the holy group. And then other guests didn't have the permission to attend, not even stand from a distance. So the guests that used to come would spend two meals of the Shabbos meals with the Bashamt. It was a summer Shabbos, and something happened, and it startled, it overwhelmed, it shook up all of the students of the Baal Shem Tev and his Chavraya Kadisha, his holy inner circle, which was comprised of extraordinary minds and great Ga'inim, students of the Baal Shem Tev, people like the Magad of Mizrich, Toldus Yaakov Yosef, Repinchas of Koritz. The Baal Shem Tev had 60 Talmidim, many of them were in his they were called Chevrai Kadush, and some of them were chief rabbis of, of large cities, large towns, large communities. So this happened on a Shabbos Dikis summer day. It was Shabbos, and many guests came for Shabbos, including simple Jews, Jews who owned inns, motels, Jews who worked the land, farmers, Jews who had who were laborers, you had tailors. You had shoemakers, you had farmers, those who planted vineyards and other orchards. You had people who raised cattle and people who raised birds. You had merchants in the marketplaces, vendors, and similarly, similar types of Jews. That Shabbos, it was Friday night, and the Baal Shem Tev displayed enormous love and affection to the simple guests who have come, called simple, sincere Jews. In fact, one of them, he gave his own cup, it was the wine that was left over from Kiddush, and he gave it to one of them, which was a tremendous thing. The second one, he gave his cup to use for Kiddush. Some of them, he shared with them parts of the challah on which he made hamaytzi. To others, he gave part. He gave pieces of the fish and the meat that was in his plate. And other kiruvim, other forms of closeness, that really startled the Chevraya Kadisha, the inner holy circle of the Baal Shem Tev, tremendously. These guests who have arrived for Shabbos, knowing that for the second meal, Shabbos morning, they have no permission to go into the meal of the Baal Shem Tev because this was designated only for his closest students, the Chevraya Kadisha. So after they ate Shabbos meal on their own, wherever they ate, they came to the shul of the Baal Shem Tev, and since they were very simple Jews, 
They were not scholars, they were not literate, they were not educated. You had many Jews like that. All they can do is read Hebrew. They read Ivra, so they could read Chumash, they could read Tehillim. That's what they can do. They couldn't learn Mishnayis and learn Gemara and learn Mefarch and Rishayim and It was beyond them. So every one of them, after the meal, came back to Shul and they started to say Tehillim. This story happened in the years Tovkuf Yud Gimel through Tovkuf Tesvav. That would be 1753, between 1753 and 1755. That's five years before the Baal Shem Tov's passing. Passed away 1760. During that time, the Baal Shem Tov had students who were geniuses, who were great spiritual minds and giants. For example, the Magad of Mizrich, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Pulna, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, and many others. As the Baal Shem Tov sat down to the second meal of Shabbos, Shabbos morning after davening, he organized his students, the holy group, each person in his place. There was a certain structure the Baal Shem Tov had. The Baal Shem Tov was a very, very organized person. And when they started to sit, they were sat for a while, the Baal Shem Tov started to teach Torah. And his students melted away in divine ecstasy. There was a divine pleasure that overtook them hearing the Baal Shem Tov's Torah. The order was, the system was, that at these meals they would sing zmiras, they would sing various songs and nigunim. And when the holy group, the students, saw that the Baal Shem Tov spirit was elated, so they themselves were so overjoyed and they were so overtaken by simcha and by ecstasy. Their heart felt so good and they were so filled with gratitude to Hashem for all the goodness and the kindness that God gave them. And the most important thing is that they had a schus to be at the feet of the Baal Shem Tov, to be a student of the Kedosh Hashem, of the Baal Shem Tov. May his soul rest in peace. So you have to understand when they saw the Baal Shem Tov in such a elevated space he himself was in a state of joy it just it inspired them they themselves felt so so lucky so grateful to Hashem some of the students felt that now is a good time because now they have the Baal Shem Tov themselves at the other meals you have a lot of simple Jews who are fine people but they don't really understand anything they have no depth they're not educated they don't really get it they don't understand the goinness, the brilliance, the intricacies, the depth. Baal Shem Tov was, was, besides everything else, Baal Shem Tov was a genius in Torah. People don't know this. The Baal Shem Tov had students who were goin They didn't come there for the fish and the herring and because the Baal Shem Tov smiled to them. You're talking about people who were masters of Kabbalah, of Nigla, of Halach, of Shas, of Poiskim. I told you that chief rabbis of Chaim Rappaport told us, you had a lot of people there who were goin so they said, you know, the other meals you have there, they're there, they're there for the, you know, they're there for the warmth, but they don't really get it. Now it's good, now it's, they said, now they felt much better. And they were thinking to themselves, they didn't say it, but they were thinking, why does the Baal spend so much time displaying so much cure of so much love to these simple Jews? In fact, he's sharing with them his own wine from his own cup. He's giving his own goblet, which he never did, to one of these simple Jews. As they're thinking about this, a few of the students, as they're thinking about this, suddenly they see the face of the Baal Shem Tov becomes very serious. He goes into a dvekas, he goes into a very deep trance. And in that trance, he starts talking. And this is what he says. These are the words of the Baal Shem Tov. These are his words. 
The Pasuk says, Shalom, Shalom, Lairachaik, Vilakarif. Peace, peace to the distant and to the close. So Chazal say, Lairachaik, it should have said to the close and to the distant. So Chazal say, it's Lairachaik, Shanasakarif. It's to those who are distant who then become close. Because the place where Bali Tshuva, returnees stand, even complete Sadikim cannot stand there. And the Baal Tev explained what they meant by complete Sadikim. And he says that there are two paths in serving Hashem. There's the path of the tzaddik and the path of the Balchuva. The tzaddik is the righteous, holy Jew, and the Balchuva is the Jew who struggles and returns to Judaism. And the Baal explained that the work of the simple Jews who come here is like the Balchuva. They are on the spiritual level of the Balchuva because they always have a sense of humility. They have this inner deep sense of vulnerability and surrender. Just like a Balchuva who has remorse for the past, and feels the need to change himself or herself for the future, these Jews, even though they were, so to speak, FFBs, they grew up as religious Jews, but because of their simplicity, they have this inner sense of of remorse, of humility, always working on themselves, never feeling completely content and satisfied. As the Baal Shem finished teaching this, they began singing various songs. And the students who in the beginning were thinking about the fact that it's strange that the Baal Shem shows so much love to these simple Jews, understood that the Baal Shem Tev felt what they were thinking, and therefore he said what he said, and he explained the tremendous maila, the tremendous virtue of the service of Hashem, of these simple Jews, that it's similar to the Bali Tshuva, who exceed the Tzadikim. In other words, the Baal Shem Tev was telling them that these Jews, their service of God is much, sometimes much greater than your own. The Baal Shem Tev at that point was in tremendous dvekas. He was in a tremendously deep meditative state. When they finished singing, he opened his holy eyes. He gazed at the faces of his students for a long time and very deeply. And then he asked that each one of his students places his right hand on the shoulder of the friend sitting near him. So that all of the students sitting around the table were now interlocked with each other. Because everybody's hand was on the shoulder of the person sitting near him. The Baal Shem Tev was sitting at the head of the table. He asked them to sing a few songs as they were si- sitting like this with their hands interlaced, interlocked with each other. When they finished singing, he told them that they should close their eyes and should not open their eyes until he does not instruct them to open their eyes. And then he took his two holy hands and he placed his right arm on the shoulder of the student sitting on his right and he placed his left arm on the shoulder of the student sitting on his left. Suddenly, all of the students heard a sound of music that was filled with sweetness and pleasantness and delight, with a sense of yearning and aspirations that shakes up a soul. Suddenly they hear one person singing and saying, Oy, riboyno shaloylam, this is a verse from Tehillim, how Hashem's words are so pure like refined silver and completely purified of all toxicity. Another one is singing, Clean out my kidneys and my heart. Again from Tehillim. Another one sings, my father, my heart, my dear, beloved, heartfelt father. Another one 
make find refuge for my soul. I want to dwell in the shadow of your wings until the turmoil passes. Another one sings, I give out this fatter in Himmel. Yakimalakim my sweet father in heaven, let all of the enemies run and flee from our presence. Another one screams out in a bitter, in a deep, in a deep emotional voice. Tayiratata, precious father, gam tzipor matzavayis udrur kainlash eshosaf reches efrechesbes bechaysecha Hashem tzvayis malki velakai. Again, another capital in Tehillim speaking about that even a, a, a bird finds a nest where she could where she could. Dwell and another one cries out, Liber Fater the Badam de Ketata Shuvenu Alakeyushen of Afrikaschemenu. My beloved father, my compassionate father, bring us back and remove all wrath from us. The holy students hear the music and the sound of the Tehillim. They themselves are trembling, and even though their eyes are closed, floods of tears are flowing down from their eyes on their cheeks. And their heart feels so much humility from this sound of ecstasy coming from the people saying to Hillam and each one of the students is, is hoping and blessing themselves that they should have the merit to serve Hashem with this type of passion and unwavering sincerity and profound connection. The Baal Shem Tev removed his holy hands from the shoulders of the two students that were sitting on his right and on his left. And as he removed his hands, suddenly there was silence. They couldn't hear anymore what they heard a few moments ago. These Jews saying to Hillam, the Baal Shem Tov told them to open their eyes and to sing some songs which he told them to sing. The Mizritcha Magid Reb Doiv Ber was there. He repeated the story to the Alter Rebbe, to his student, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya. And he told them, when I heard... When I had that vision and I heard those Jews saying to Hillam, I had shvichas hanefesh, my soul poured out to God, and I had deep gaguyim, deep yearnings. I felt an ecstatic love which I never experienced before. My slippers, my pantoffle, my sandals were soaking from sweat and tears of tshuva that came from the deepest part of my heart. When the Baal Shem to finish singing, everybody was quiet. The Baal Shem Tev remained in tremendous dveikas, tremendous ecstasy for a while. He opened his eyes and then he said, the voices of Tehillim that you heard is coming from the simple Jews who are now saying Tehillim with simple faith, but from the deepest parts of their sincere heart. You, my dear students, holy Jews, look at you, look at you. Even you and us, we don't have access to the full truth. We only have access to svas emes, to the tip of truth, because we know that our body can delude us. Our body doesn't always give us the truth. Our soul always knows the truth. But we don't have access to the full truth. And our soul is part of the whole truth. That's why it's called the tip of truth. Still, we recognize the truth. We feel the truth. And we get emotional from the truth. Certainly Hashem, who is all about truth, he knows the truth about the Tehillim of these Jews. You just got a little glimpse into the truth and you're still so moved. You understand how Hashem is moved? The Alter Rebbe told over the story to his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek. He told him that the Maggid of Mizrit shared with him the story and he told him that afterwards he was in such pain and remorse 
that he had such thoughts about his Rebbe, feeling that the Baal Shem Tev is wasting his time and energy in displaying such love to these Jews. And the Magad did a few tikkunim, he did a few things to fix this thing, but he could not relax himself, he could not forgive himself that he was questioning his Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tev. One night, one night, the Magad says, I had a vision. The Alter Rebbe did not share with the Tzemach Tzedek what the vision is. Initially, the Alter Rebbe did not share with the Tzemach Tzedek. You know when he shared it with him? A week before his passing. In other words, this week. The Alter Rebbe passed away, Chavdala Tevis, Tavkofay and Gimel. The 24th of Tevis, Metzoy Shabbos, 1030, 1812. Metzoy Shabbos, Shmois. Chavdala Tevis was Sunday, Shabbos was Chav Gimel. That week, before his passing, he was running away from Napoleon, he was in the Ukraine, he was staying in a little town called Piena, they buried him in Hadich, not too far. The week before his passing, he finally shared with him what the vision was. He wanted the Tzamech Tzedek to know. And the Magid said as follows, it was one night and I had a vision. I was walking in the chambers of Ganeidin. I was walking in the Heichalos, the spiritual sanctuaries and chambers of paradise. I was returning. He went one way and then he was returning. And I passed one chamber where there were children sitting and learning Chumash and Moshe was sitting at the head table. So what's happening in Ganeidin? In Ganeidin, all the souls are learning Torah for thousands of years. He says there was one chamber, children are sitting and Moshe is teaching them Torah. All the children were learning Parshas Lech Lecha. One of the children was saying the Chumash loud. This is the vision that the Magad is having. He tells this to the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe tells us that Samach Tzedek a few days before he passes away. The first part of the story the Alter Rebbe shared earlier, but this vision only right before he passed. And the Magad is watching this. He's having this experience of the children learning Chumash with Moshe. And one of the children is reading loud, Parshas Lech Lecha. And there there's a pasuk by Yipol Avram Alpanav Yitzchak. When Hashem promises Avram to have a child, Avram falls on his face and he starts laughing. And he says, a person who's 100 years old is going to father a baby, and Sarah who's 90 years old is going to mother a baby. And Moshe Rabbeinu tells the children that all of the commentaries in Chumash are, are MS. There's a lot of different ways of explaining it. For example, this Pasuk Vayitzchak, you could say he was joyous, v'chadi. But other Midrashim say, no, he was laughing, like cynical. And the Magid and Moshe Rabbeinu said, and no Pasuk should be taken out of its literal interpretation. Ah, you're going to ask a question. How can Avram Avinu doubt what Hashem said? He's laughing? How can he doubt it? So you should know, said Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm quoting now, Ashezel mitzad haguf, v'ashegam guf kadosh basarhu. Sometimes we have experiences because of our body, because even the holiest body is still made of flesh. This is what Moshe is explaining to the children. In other words, what Moshe is explaining is it doesn't take away from the holiness of Avram Avinu. Sometimes our body responds to certain things that we hear or that we see, and we have to appreciate it. We have to respect the fact that our body is made of flesh, even though it's a holy body. It's a sacred body. But because the body has its own reality, its own chemistry, it responds to certain realities and it doesn't mean it's going to become the defining trajectory of our life. So at that moment, Avram Avinu's body responded with laughter. 
said the Alter Rebbe to the Tzamech Tzedek, my teacher, the Maga, told me, when I heard from Moshe Rabbeinu, that because of a one's physical body, you can have thoughts that are just natural. They come into you. They are bodily thoughts and bodily sensations. The Maggid of Mizrich relaxed. He was beating himself up for the fact that he was questioning the Balshamtiv and he was thinking that the Balshamtiv is is really squandering his holy time and he couldn't figure out and wrap his brain around what the Balshamtiv was doing until that Shabbos at the meal when the Baal Shem Tov put his hands on the, on the shoulders of his students and he showed them that vision of the Tehillim and the Shul that was happening right then during lunch, during Shabbos lunch. But now that the Magid learned this concept from Moshe Rabbeinu and Gadein, and what was the concept? That sometimes your body just responds. It's not the end of the world. You don't have to worship it. But that's what it is. My body responds with a certain emotion, with a certain sensation with a certain angst, with a certain experience, with a certain feeling, with a certain thought. Avramovinu laughed. So the Magad felt much better. The Tzemach Tzedek shared this story with the next generation, and that's how the Rebbe Rayatz knew the story. So this is a direct story in the Chabad dynasty that the Rebbe Rayatz, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, heard from his father, heard from his father, heard from his father, the Tzemach Tzedek, who heard from his grandfather, who heard it from the Magad, who was right there by the Baal by the story. And the Rebbe complete, concludes the letter. Obviously, from then to now, a lot of things have changed. And even though the path of Chassidus has expanded, but still we do know that our minds are smaller today and our hearts are smaller today, both in understanding and both in our ability to transform our hearts. But the pure faith and the beloved sincerity with the kindness of Hashem and the schus of our fathers, the holy Rebbes, still have the same power and vigor to give us life, tremendous internal life in Torah, in mitzvahs, and an acquisition of good midos. This is the story. It's a very, very deep story on many, many levels. It's so deep because, and it fits into, we learned last week about the donkey, you remember the donkey of Moshe Rabbeinu, the donkey of Avraham, the donkey of Mashiach, donkey, chamer, chamer, working with the body, three levels. We spoke in Chaya Sarah about Hashem telling Avraham, whatever Sarah tells you, you have to listen to her. So here we have another dimension of a teaching of Moshe Rabbeinu that the Magad heard during a night's vision. I'm sharing with you the story because it's a story. It's a powerful story about sincerity, about emunah, about simplicity, about people, great people, who often have this feeling of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why should I hang out with you? You know, how could we compare ourselves to each other? You know, I'm in a completely different state. You're in a completely different state. And how the Baal really had to heal his students and inculcate within them a larger, deeper, more divine, more authentic perspective. There's so many amazing aspects to the story. Another aspect is how, how small our vision is. You know, the Baal Shem Tov closed their eyes and as they closed their eyes, they actually could start seeing. As they connected to each other with their arms on the shoulders in the presence of the Baal Shem Tov, they saw things. They heard things. After that, they didn't. You know, our scope of vision is, is, is limited. But here, we come now to the Sicha. And we're just going to begin today 
And as we'll see, this story is going to occupy an important feature in this Sikha of the Rebbe that was said in 1971, and uh, that's why I wanted to share this story first as an introduction. Because in this week's Parsha, and the end of Shmois and Ve'edu, we come across another story about Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu complains to God and feels that Hashem, Kevayachel, is not doing the right thing. Right? How does Parsha Shmois end? You remember? Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Parai. He tries to convince him to let the Jewish people go. And what happens? Parai increases the burden of labor on the Jews. The subjugation and enslavement and tyranny only increases to the point that the policemen who were appointed by the Egyptians to oversee the Jewish people, and they were beaten because they didn't have the heart to demand from the Israelites the quota of work that was required by Pharaoh. They were beaten. They came to Moshe and they said, God should judge you because of what you have done. You made Paray more angry at us. You made Paray feel that we smell. You made us stink. Those are the words in the eyes of Paray. And now he's really going to kill us. And that's when Moshe can't hold back. And he comes to Hashem and he says, Why have you afflicted this people? And why did you send me to go liberate them? And since I came to Paray to speak in your name... Not only did you not save this people, it became much worse. And how does Parsha Shmois end? Hashem says, Now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Parai. He will ultimately expel you from his land with a strong arm. And that's how Shmois ends. And how does Ve'era begin? Hashem speaks to Moshe and he says, Am Hashem, I appeared to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov with the name Shin Dalet Yud. I did not make my name Yud Kevavke known to them. I made a covenant with them, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, to give them the land. I made this covenant with them. And now you can tell the Jewish people, you're going to find out that I am God and I'm going to take you out from this country and ultimately I'm going to bring you to Eretz Yisrael. Now the structure here of the verses is very, very complicated. You could, I hope you learn Chumash, you learn Parshas HaShavua. If not, you should start. It's important because you look at the end of Shemois and then there's a new Parsha. Hashem continues the conversation, but with a new opening. It's extremely unclear. But Moshe Rabbeinu here challenges Hashem in a very real way. He says, why have you afflicted the Jewish people? And as we'll see, this is where this story of Moshe and Avram Avinu and the Magad and the Baal Shem Tev come in. And again, we know the story from the Tzamech Tzedek, who heard it from the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, a few, the week before he passed away. It would be interesting to note why the Alter Rebbe felt that he could not tell him about this vision all the days of his life until the last week. I don't know the answer for that, but something maybe to think about. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that we'll be able to understand that. If somebody has an interesting uh, insight, I would love to hear. Okay. So, l- let's learn. Let's, let's begin. Ve'er, Aleph. Shengiret filmal. We spoke many times, Aschach Rash is Lachel Reish Mafarish Pshutishal Mikra, and Haldzain Pirush Eichin Yonim of Floyim and Sharchel Kiatoida, when Eichiena shall Toida, Nobertaris Sinamindin Yonim Besharchel Kiatoida, Dafma Fred Uplan and Pirish Rashel Derechapshat. Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlemo Yitzchaki, who lived in the 11th century in France, in Germany as well, but primarily in France, in Troy, 
His function is, his purpose is to explain the literal meaning of the Torah. Nonetheless, as the Shalah writes, his commentary contains inyanim mufloyim. Inyanim mufloyim means wondrous, deep ideas in other parts of Torah. And the Rebbe once said that Rashi and Chumash has the wine of Torah, which is the inner secrets of Torah. But in order to extract these gems from Rashi, you first have to learn Rashi from a literal perspective. In other words, you can't right away jump into the higher, deeper layers of Rashi's commentary. First, you have to cover the pshat. <laughs> yeah, this is the first. You have to know the pshat well, thoroughly. And then you can extract the higher layers, because if not, you're not going to get it. In other words, the vista to the mystical is through the simple. Okay. Let me explain what the Rebbe is saying, because you have to get this, because if not, you're not going to understand the whole Sikha. Very briefly, and please tune into this, so you get it the first time. At the end of Parashat Shemoyes, I just said, Moshe returns to Hashem and he challenges Hashem. Why have you afflicted the people and you made things worse? How does Parsha Shmois end? The last Pasuk begins chapter 6 of Exodus. Shem tells Moshe, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pari. He's going to send you out from Egypt with a strong arm and he's going to expel you from the land. Now you see. Okay, great. Let's learn the Rashi. Now you're going to see. And Rashi says as follows, listen to this. Hashem told Moshe, Hirhartal midaisai. You questioned me. You challenged me. You really feel that I'm doing something wrong. You're not like Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, I told him that Yitzchak is going to father a nation. Then I told him, offer him as an offering. And he didn't question me. He didn't have second thoughts about my midos. He didn't think I was wrong. I'm making a mistake. I don't know what I'm doing. You're not like Avram Avinu. And therefore, Hashem told him, Atatira, now you're going to see what's going to happen to Parai. Ultimately, you will not be able to go into Eretz Yisrael. Atta, now you're going to see. This is what Rashi says at the end of Parshish Shmois. Now you're going to see what Parai does. So yes, it's going to work out now. But it's going to be for you now, because the next conquest in Eretz Yisrael, where we defeat the seven nations, that you're not going to see. That's the end of Parshish Shmois. You would think the conversation is over, Right? Moshe challenged Hashem. Hashem responded, you're going to see now, it's going to work out. Parshas Ve'era, this is where it's strange, there's a whole new story. Hashem speaks to Moshe, and he has this long conversation, one of the longest. And he says, by the way, I'm God. Okay. I appear to Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov, the name of Shindalad Yud. <coughs> Excuse me. I made a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. Now I have heard the outcry of the Jewish people, and I remember my covenant, and therefore tell them that I'm going to liberate them. And that's the continuation. So Rashi tries to understand what is the sequence, what is Hashem telling him. So after he gives the literal interpretation of these psukim, that basically Hashem says, I promised and I promised and I promised, but I never (coughs) 
executed and fulfilled my promises, which is represented by the name Yutke Vofke, that I'm loyal and I am believable, I execute, I don't only promise, now I'm going to do it. But then Rashi, <coughs> Rashi, Perik Vav Pasuk Tes, gives a whole other way of learning these Pesukim. And the point is, he says, Rabbi Seinu Darshu, our rabbis explain that really Hashem is responding to what Moshe said earlier. Why have you afflicted us? And Hashem said, you know, Chaval al da'abdin. I miss those who are gone and they're not here anymore. Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. I truly lament and grieve for the death of the others because I revealed myself to them many times with the name Shindalad Yud. They never asked me, what's my name? You, when I introduced myself to you, you said, what's your name? What should I tell them? Number one. Uh, that's number one, he says. They never asked me what's my name. You want to know what's my name. That's one complaint I have. That's why I grieve their death. Next, Avram Avinu wanted to bury his wife, Sarah. He had to pay a lot of money. Yitzchak bur- uh, undug wells. And they attacked him. They stole the wells from him. Yaakov had to buy a piece of field by Shechem. They should have all asked, why do I have to spend so much money? You promised us the land. But they didn't. They accepted me, and you didn't. You asked, why did I afflict you? And Rashi says that this medrash does not work with the literal interpretation of the Pesukim. And he gives a whole reason why this medrash does not work in the literal interpretation, even though he brings it. Okay. <clears throat> you could look up the Rashi. It's a very interesting, long one of the longest Rashi's, Perik Vav Pasuk Tes. Says the Rebbe, in Soif Parsha Shmoisef in Pasuk Atatira, at the end of Shemot, as I just quoted, where Moshe says, why have you afflicted the people? And Hashem responds, and his response is, you're going to see what's going to happen now. So Rashi says, you have questioned me, you think I'm making a mistake. Not like Avram who accepted me, even after I told him that Yitzchak will father a nation. I told him to bring him as an offering and he did not have second thoughts about my Midas and think that I made an error. So that's what Rashi said at the end of Shmois. And therefore, now you're going to see what's going to happen to Paro. You will not go into Eretz Yisrael. But this is difficult to understand. Aleph. Wow. You see the problem? At the end of Shmois, when Hashem tells Moshe, you're not like Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu didn't question me. Avram Avinu didn't have his doubts that I'm making a mistake. You did. In Parshas Ve'era, Rashi brings the same theme, contrasting Moshe from the patriarchs. But in Shmois, he only brings a proof from Avram Avinu. Here in the beginning of Eire, he also brings from Yitzchak and Yaakov. What happened? Base. Oich benegei Avram Gufa. Is it actually where Parshat Seinam Afarish Dominion from Lahiru Racha Medoisi Metanander Mu'ura? Kshabikash Avram Likbir Asada. Vien Seif Parshat Shmois. Shemaktalik. Even with Avram, he chooses a different story. At the end of Shmois, he chooses the story of the Akedah. I promised Avram that Yitzchak is going to father a nation. There are going to be children that come from Yitzchak. And then I told them to offer Yitzchak as an offering. That was the issue that Avram was challenged with. And nonetheless, he accepted it in good faith. In Parshas Ve'era, 
Rashi brings a whole different story. That when Avram wanted to bury Sarah, he had to purchase the land of the Machpelah for a lot of money. Why does he change the story? Gimel, the Iker. The biggest question, at the end of Shmois, Rashi says it as the literal interpretation of the Pesukim. Hashem says, now you're going to see. He was basically chastising Moshe Rabbeinu for second-guessing him, unlike Avram. Here, Rashi says, It's not the literal interpretation. It's a special drash from the rabbis, and Rashi actually rejects it, which is also a chiddush, that he brings it and he rejects it, because usually Rashi only brings a medrash if it gives us an understanding in the words of the Pesach. Here he quotes it and then he rejects it. And at the end of Parashat Shmois, he says it as the literal interpretation of the Pesukim. Beis v'yeshloimar, as the let's the diuk for entret kol hanal. In Soif Parashat Shmois, is Rashi mefarish pshutu shal mikra al-asar. Ukipshutu is the posseg v'yem Hashem al-moyesha atatira an entret kanal if tairis moyesha de Pesukim lufnez al-amari es al-amazah umi oz bossi al-paraladabe b'shmecha heid al-amazah. Wow. The Rebbe says the last question, he asked a few questions, right? He asked three questions. The last question gives us the opening to understand it. At the end of Shmois, Rashi is trying to explain the meaning of the verse right there. The literal meaning. Moshe says, Why are you doing this? Hashem says, Now you're going to see what I do to Parai. What's the response? What's the response? So Rashi explains the response. Moshe told Hashem, why have you done it to the Jewish people? And since I came to speak in your name, it got worse. He wasn't just asking, why are you torturing them? He wasn't saying only that my mission was unsuccessful. I haven't saved the people. He was saying something much deeper than that. It became worse. This was his lamentation. It wasn't just, why do you do this? Why are you putting them through the ringer? And nothing helped. No, it's worse. You send me to go redeem them and it becomes worse. <laughs> Don't send me. Don't send me. You send me to liberate them. In other words, there's already optimism. There's good faith. There's joy. Jews are hopeful. And because I went, it became worse. If I wouldn't have gone, Padre wouldn't have gotten angry. He wouldn't have increased the slave labor. Because I went, it became worse. That was his time. Not only did my shlichus not affect the salvation of the Jewish people, my shlichus to pare made things worse. And Hashem responds to Moshe. 
and says, you're not like Avram Avinu. Which story of Avram Avinu does he choose? So Rashi has to find a story that reflects the similar circumstances which Moshe Rabbeinu was bringing to the table. What were the circumstances? That as a result of God's promise, of God's mission, things got worse. That's the contrast. If he brings another story, it wouldn't be a contrast with what Moshe was saying. Moshe wasn't just questioning why Hashem allows suffering in the world. He was questioning something even more. You already send me. You tell me things are good. And because I go, believing things are good, it becomes worse. <laughs> right? That's like an extra, an extra stab, an extra stink. So where is there an example for this by Avram Avinu and his reaction? Hashem told Avram Avinu, He promised him, you're going to have a son Yitzchak, and this Yitzchak, after he was born, he told him, he's going to father the Jewish nation. And then you tell him, then I tell him, then Avram Avinu tells, then Hashem tells Avram Avinu, bring him as an offering. The promise of Hashem caused an extra pain, just like by Moshe Rabbeinu, by sending him, it became worse. By giving this promise to Avram Avinu, the pain became so much more difficult. As the Rebbe says, you see practically, there is pain of a parent, not of a father or mother not having a child. But you can't compare it to the pain of somebody that Hashem blessed them with a child, an only child, and when they were old, and then he gets taken away. Especially when the father himself has to Sacrifice the child. That pain is so much more devastating. You didn't promise a child. You didn't promise a child. It's painful. But now you promised. And not only you promised, you delivered. There's a child. And you said, this child can be This child is going to be the father. It's not just a child for a few years. It's a child that's going to last, that's going to live for eternity. A whole nation is going to be built from this child. And then it's taken away. So here it's your promise and your commitment and your actions that made the Akedah so much worse. That's what Rashi brings at the end of Shmois, because that's the contrast to Moshe Rabbeinu's behavior. And what is Hashem saying? And still Avram Avinu understood that he doesn't have to wrap his brain around my behavior. He can trust me. He doesn't have to second guess me. He doesn't have to think, I know what I'm doing, I made mistakes. You're not like that. That's why Rashi contrasts the two. And therefore, Atatira, now you'll see what's going to happen. You're not going to go into Eretz Yisrael. So we understand why Rashi can't bring the other examples of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with buying the Maris HaMachpelah, with having issues with the wells that the Philistines are taking away, with Yaakov Avinu being forced to buy property in Eretz Yisrael. Over there, the challenge was not that as a result of Hashem's promise, things got worse. Over there was a general challenge that life was filled with struggle. In those cases, Avram Avinu had to buy a plot for his wife, for a lot of money. Yitzchak had to fight for his wells in Eretz Yisrael, the Plishtim. Yaakov had to buy a field, also for a lot of money. And they didn't second-guess Hashem. 
They didn't say, you know, you promised us Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> so why am I buying the Maris Machpelah for a lot of money? Right, but over there, it's not that Hashem's promise caused more problems. It's not like if Hashem wouldn't have promised them, they would get it for cheap. Because Hashem promised them Eretz Yisrael, therefore Ephraim decided to, to, to charge Avram a lot of money. It's not like Yitzchak had issues with the wells because God promised the marriage to Israel. It's not that the God promise made it worse. So therefore Rashi doesn't bring it because over there what the others might have thought is not that God's promise made it worse, but Hashem promised me that He's going to give me a land. Why do I have to pay so much money for the Maris HaMachpel? Why do I have to fight for my wells? Why do I have to pay such an exuberant sum for a piece of land in Shechem? So even if they would have such second thoughts on God and question Him and challenge Him and feel that something is wrong, it wouldn't be parallel to what Moshe Rabbeinu was thinking, to what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. What Moshe was saying is that God's mission itself caused the disaster. If Hashem wouldn't have sent him, situation was dire, was bad enough. There was some comfort, I don't know, comfort zone. There was something they were accustomed to it. But because Hashem sent him, Pari got enraged, Pari got infuriated, he made things much worse. This was Moshe's challenge. He doesn't just tell Hashem, he says, your mission itself made it worse. It's not like, okay, Pari would have made it worse anyway. No, he made it worse because Moshe came in his shlichus. So Moshe is like, what's happening here? You know, the Jews are suffering, and now you send me to help and to liberate them and emancipate them. And what happens? Because you sent me, it got worse. So here the contrast can't be to Avram, Itzik, and Yaakov buying the property. Because over there the divine promise didn't make things worse. They would have anyway had to pay a lot of money for the real estate. It happened to be they could have been upset with God. The right example, the right contrast is only the story of the Akedah. Because here it's Hashem's promise, that really caused so much more pain. If he didn't promise, he didn't promise. A person doesn't have a child, they don't have a child. But Hashem's promise, you're going to have a child. And he delivers on it. And then he promises. That what? That this child is going to live for eternity because he's going to build generations of offspring. So the hopes are so high, the joy is so deep. And then you take it away. You yourself made it so much more painful. Made that kid so much more painful. And nonetheless... Avram Avinu can accept it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have to understand God. That's the contrast to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why at the end of Shmois, Rashi only brings the story of Avram and he brings the story of the Akedah. Where Rashi is say, 
that our, our Rebbes saw that all these Pesukim, all the Pesukim in the beginning of the era, their entire theme, not just the last Pesuk of Shmois, which is a direct response to Lamare Yosef, but also the entire continuation of the narrative of Parshas Veda, where Hashem speaks how I appear to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, all of them. It's all a continuation to Hashem's response to the fact that Moshe questioned God's behavior. It's part of Inyan Shalmaila. It's a continuation to the theme at the end of Shmois. Not just a separate story. But it's part of God's response to all the questions of Moshe. To Moshe's words. To Moshe second guessing and, and thinking what Hashem does. And not just Moshe complaining about this one aspect that Hashem's mission caused things to get worse. But just the general question of why things are so bad. And why did he put the Jews into this position? And that already began, not at the end of Shmois, it began already, as Hashem said, when you start asking me, what's my name? Like, you're really challenging me. So here, Rashi, as a drasha, he brings the fact that all the others did not question God. All the others accepted God on good faith. So here he brings Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the Avram, Yaakov. And here it's not just about that it got worse. It's just the general thing of having the ability to say, I don't understand, I don't understand, and that's fine. And he says in 21, that this would explain why Rashi even brings this whole drush, even though he himself rejects it. And if you're rejecting it, why are you bringing it? He says, because according to the first explanation, it would be difficult to understand, why didn't Hashem chastise Moshe for saying, what's your name? What am I going to tell them, what's your name? So Rashi brings the second interpretation, that according to the Rebbes, he did chastise him. After he said, he mentioned that detail as well. He goes into all the details in footnote number 21. You could look it up. You could say one more thing. there's another aspect, another explanation. When Moshe challenges Hashem and says, why are you doing this? Why have you so afflicted the Jewish people? He's not complaining about a personal, painful experience in his life. He's talking about the nation, Klal Yisrael. He himself actually didn't have to work. He grew up in the palace, then he escaped to Midian. He was a refugee. And even when he came back, the tribe of Levi didn't have slave labor. This was not a personal issue with Moshe. Even though he was part of the nation and he suffered and his family suffered and his friends suffered and his relatives suffered. But he was complaining, he was crying out about the people. 
So now when Hashem is contrasting Moshe to the Avais, Rashi can't give an example that Avram Avinu didn't question God about the fact that he had to pay for the Maris HaMachpela. Or Yitzchak didn't question Hashem about the fact that he had to quarrel and fight for his wells. And Yaakov didn't question Hashem for the fact that he had to buy and purchase a field in Shechem in order to live there, to dwell there for an exuberant price. <clears throat> you can't compare. These were all things that affected them as individuals. So yeah, they didn't complain, they didn't challenge God because they understood. Hashem promised them to give the marriage to Israel, but a lot of things can happen. Rashi said before there's a concept called Shem Agaram Hachet. Sometimes there's a promise, but sometimes as a result of my behaviors, I'm undeserving to experience the actualization of this promise. So they could have all thought, okay, Hashem has his calculations with me, and for whatever reason, the promise wasn't fulfilled. Rashi himself said this by Yaakov. Why was Yaakov afraid when Esav was coming with 400 people? Hashem told him, I'm going to be with you. So Rashi says in Vayishlach, he thought, Shem Agarim Achet. Maybe I've made mistakes and errors that ultimately ruin things for me. So therefore I can understand that the Avais didn't question Hashem. But Moshe can't blame himself for his own sins. Because he wasn't complaining about himself. This wasn't about his own well-being. He was crying out for the suffering of Klal Yisrael. <clears throat> so Rashi can't say that Hashem contrasted it with the Avais who didn't challenge God about their own personal painful moments when they had to pay a lot of money for the Marisa Machpel. <clears throat> and I should also add, and the pain of paying a lot of money can't be compared to the pain of Golas Mitzrayim. The pain of losing wells is not the same pain like Golas Mitzrayim. So it was also much less pain, but it was also personal. So they could find reasons why God did not fulfill the promise of giving them marriage to Israel during their times. <clears throat> but Moshe Rabbeinu, he's not crying about himself. He's crying for his people. So that's why Rashi, at the end of Parsha Shemois, can bring the stories of Avram, Mitzak, and Yaakov that he brings later in Ve'er. It's not going to work. In the previous Siv, the Rebbe gave an answer because Moshe's complaint was that it got worse. So he had to find that in Avram Avinu. But here he's saying something else. Hashem had to find something that was similar. And therefore he compares it to Avram Avinu with the Akedah. Because when Hashem told him to take Yitzchak to the Akedah, this wasn't something that would cause Avram pain as an individual. This would eliminate the future of the Jewish people. If Yitzchak would have been sacrificed, there would have been no Jew. There would have been no Jew alive. In other words, Avram Avinu was sacrificing not only his own life, not only his own happiness, his own joy, his own nachas, he was sacrificing the future of all the generations. So you can't say, oh, because of my sin, God's promise wasn't fulfilled. This is not just affecting me, it's affecting the Jewish people for eternity that will never emerge. Still, he can accept Hashem. He didn't feel the need to think that God made mistakes. He can accept it. By Yitzchak and Yaakov, we don't find such a story ever. That's why at the end of Shmois, he has to bring this story of Avram Avinu. Because this is the only appropriate contrast to Moshe. Moshe was not thinking about himself. Moshe was thinking about the people. And he was questioning God. What are you doing? Hashem says, Avram was not that way. It was also not a personal thing, that Kedah. It wasn't only about him. It was also about him, but it wasn't only about him. He couldn't say over there, <clears throat> okay, maybe my own mistakes, maybe my own sins didn't allow me to experience the joy of Yitzchak. For whatever reason. <clears throat> he couldn't say that because not only affecting him, it's affecting eternity. So he could have said, wait, there's no excuse for this, God. There's no excuse. 
But he understood Hashem's infinity, infinity cannot be grasped by my brain. So that's why in Parsha Shmois, Rashi's example is meticulous. from a literal perspective in Chumash, this is clear. And that's why in Shmois, Rashi has to give that one example from Avram with the Akedah. In Parshas Ve'edah, he introduces Rabbi Seinu Darshu. He's introducing Medrash. He's introducing Agoda. Agoda is the homiletical perspective of Torah, which is part of what's known in Zayar as the soul of Torah. The Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya that most secrets of Torah are embedded and hidden in Agadita, in Medrashim, in the stories in Gemara, in the homiletical interpretations. So Drash is already a deeper spiritual layer of Torah, and there the Avais are called Merkava. Merkava means they are a chariot of God. Even down here, they are like a Merkava. Merkava were like the angels who are the chariots of God. There's no sin, there's no corruption. Their entire entity is just a manifestation of God. So on that level, you can't say about the Avais. They became soiled by sin. The Avais are a Merkava. They're a conduit for Hashem. As it says in Tanya chapter 23, he brings in 28, footnote 28, all their limbs were sacred, and completely, completely aligned with the Rebbeinu Shalolam all the days of their life. That's what a Merkava means. A Merkava means like a chariot, which is just a channel, just like a chariot or a car or a horse, a wagon. It's just there to facilitate and bring you from one place to another place. The obvious with the manifestation of the divine light in this world. So when Rashi brings Medrash, here you can say that the Avais became soiled through sin. It's a deeper layer of understanding them. So therefore, even individual pain in their life, like Avram Avinu having to pay so much money for the plot for Sarah, and Yitzchak to fight for his wells, and Yaakov to purchase his field. The fact that they did not question God, they accepted it with grace. They understood that they don't understand. They understood that it's okay not to be okay with Hashem, because you don't have to understand. You can trust this can also be introduced here. Ah, you say it was individual issues. And with individual issues, they could say, oh, maybe my sin affected it. So how could you compare it to Moshe who wasn't asking for himself, he was asking for the Jewish people, so his sin couldn't affect the pain of all the Jewish people. The answer to that is, on a deeper level of medrash, the others are beyond sin. So they can't justify it that way. So how could they justify it? They have to just accept God. So therefore it could be introduced as a contrast to Moshe Rabbeinu. Because since their entire entity, they're a Merkava, a chariot for the will of Hashem all the days of their life. So therefore when this happens to them, they can't attribute it to their own sins. So how did they accept it? They accepted it because they understood that they don't have to understand. Now you'll ask in 24, why couldn't Moshe say the same thing? Maybe the sin of the Jewish people caused that it shouldn't happen. Maybe not his own sin. But here we're talking pshat. And Rashi himself says in Shmoy's Perik based Pasuk Yudala that that's a medrash. 
that Moshe felt that the sins of the Jewish people may be preventing redemption. Especially later in Shemais, Hashem tells him, go back to Mitzrayim because all the people who want to kill you have died. Who are these people? The people is those who gossiped and slandered to parry about Moshe Rabbeinu and they're gone. So therefore these sins are also gone. So therefore Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't have a justification. Oh, their sins are preventing the Gula. So therefore you can't al-pipshat, contrast him to the others besides Avram Avinu when it came to the Akedah. So this is the first part of the Sikha that deals with explaining Rashi on a literal level. Very, very big question. I hope you understood. It's not, you have to halt cup here. If you didn't understand, learn it again. So this finishes, this concludes the first half of the Sikha that deals with the literal understanding of this tremendous contradiction in Rashi. We're at the end of Shmois. He sees Hashem lamenting and contrasting Moshe to Avram Avinu about one particular incident. Moshe complaining about Mitzrayim and Avram not complaining about the Akedah. In Parshas of Eire, suddenly Rashi brings the same lamentation of Hashem, but here he's quoting stories of all the others, and even with Avram, a different story. At the end of Shmois, it's Pshat. In Parshas of Eire, it's Medrash that he rejects. So the Rebbe gave two different ways of understanding this contrast in Rashi. <laughs> One is that at the end of Shmois, he's talking about Moshe's complaint, not only that things are bad, but that things became worse because of the divine intervention. The divine intervention made it Kavayachal worse. And the contrast for that would only be the Akedah, not the other stories. We're in the parishes of Eir, Rashi can introduce also all of the stories of the others, because there is the general concept that Moshe is second-guessing God, not just that things got worse. And then in Siv Gimel, the second explanation in Rashi, that Avram and Moshe are not experiencing personal pain. It's something that affects the Jewish people, and therefore there's an appropriate contrast. Where in Parshas Ve'era, where he brings Medrash, he introduces all of the Aves, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Because the fact that they're not second-guessing God, even when it comes to individual aspects of their life, is an appropriate contrast to Moshe Rabbeinu, because you're talking about people who are complete conduits for Hashem's will. And therefore, even their individual experiences as a Merkava, they're not going to say there is sin over here, and still they accept it. The Rabbi Now he goes to the deeper layer of Rashi, which is going to introduce the story of the Magad and the Balshamtav that we spoke a few minutes ago. And this we're going to continue 7.30 Thursday morning. Okay, let's go. We'll do some questions for a few minutes. Okay, question. Uh, a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, number one. I'm waiting here for the deeper meaning. This sounds so familiar. Appreciating the previous generations over the current one. Can this be coming from Hashem too? I need the deeper meaning here. Okay, we still have to get to the second half of the Sikha. Next question. But Rabbi, can we say that the Israelites in Egypt paid off with their pain and slavery, which is much more than the money of Ram, Isaac, and Jacob paid in money. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu was so agitated because Hashem was so much more harsh with them. You can't compare it to what the others went through. Right, exactly. That's what I mentioned this. The Moshe was, a, was such a deep pain. The others didn't have such deep pain besides the Akedah. The Akedah, he was losing his son. And that's not just losing his son, it's losing his only son from Sarah, and it's losing the entire future of the Jewish people. That was exactly my question. Hard to understand how Moshe was wrong. Avram was letting go of his own shattered dreams, but Moshe was advocating on behalf of the people. It wasn't about him. Isn't that the job of a Jewish leader? 
Wasn't Amayshir Rabbeinu right to complain? It wasn't about his personal issue that God did for him. He was advocating on behalf of the Jewish people. Great question, great question. I just want to emphasize that Avram Avinu was also, because when Avram, Avram Avinu didn't complain, but he could have, because this was not just on behalf of him. This is on behalf of the Jewish people that would never come into existence because Yitzchak would be slaughtered, and that day would be the death of the Jewish people. So this wasn't just a personal issue, this was something that affected the future of Klal Yisrael. But you're asking, shouldn't a Jewish leader complain? So we're going to get more into this, but generally on the most simple level, what Rashi is teaching us here, based on the sages, is that Hashem is telling Moshe Rabbeinu that Avram Avinu and Yitzchak Avinu and Yaakov Avinu all went through difficulties in their life. But they understood that they don't understand me. They understood that they don't have to wrap their brains around Hashem. They didn't second-guess me and think I made an error. They had this trust that God knows what He's doing, and this was their challenge to Moshe Rabbeinu, even though Moshe was speaking from deep pain and deep anguish. More, more about this later. Next question. With Avram Avinu, the nation was only a theory, it was only a promise. With Moshe, it was like the parent who already had the child. Maybe Moshe was right to have a different reaction than Avram Avinu. Good question, excellent question. You're saying that by Moshe was much worse because the people in the thousands, hundreds of thousands, they left Egypt 600,000 between 20 and 60, were suffering so, so badly. With Avram Avinu, he would lose this one child with Akeda. With Moshe Rabbeinu, with so many children that were lost. And it wasn't just the future in potentiality, but it was already the present. So Avram Avinu would also lose a child that was already there. It's not just a child in theory. Avram Avinu didn't have a child in theory. At Akeda, he had a child. Yitzchak was alive and he would have lost him. So that's beyond painful. And he would do it himself. As the Sikha points out, he himself would do it. But you're saying still Moshe Rabbeinu was dealing with so many more people. But I don't know if one can compare the pain of Avram Avinu to actually sacrifice himself. Moshe Rabbeinu is not killing the Jews. Pari is killing the Jews. Avram Avinu was told that he himself has to slaughter and sacrifice the child that was already around. So that's a pretty, pretty profound thing. You're saying still Moshe Rabbeinu is dealing with a whole nation, so therefore his reaction is perhaps different. But nonetheless, the Akedah does have very striking similarities. Without the interpretation of Chassidus, so many of these parenting techniques from Hashem were, hound, were handed down generation to generation at face value. And I don't think they're always so beneficial for the Jewish people, such as, here is a statement, why can't you be like... Why can't you be like? And I don't think that's helpful for children. Why can't you be like? And I think here too, we need a deeper interpretation of what is going on. Okay, point well taken. We're not done yet. Where is the Zoom link for the, mon- for the Monday evening shear on Tanya? So sign up to our WhatsApp and you'll get all the Zoom links. If you go to theyeshiva.net, There's contact us or sign up to our newsletter and over there sign up to the WhatsApp and you'll find, you'll have all the, you'll have all the, you'll, you'll get, you'll get each time there's a, there's a class, you'll get the Zoom link. Say that. I'll also ask them to put it on the item on the yeshiva.net. So if you go to the yeshiva.net where it's going to be aired, they're going to put in the comments the Zoom link. So you'll be able to find it there as well.
Okay, next question. Does this not understanding and trusting everything work the same between people and conflicts and relationships? If yes, how do you advise it's possible to attain for the human brain which needs clarity and understanding? And how can we get the special Zoom link for tonight? Okay, again, the Zoom link, sign up to our WhatsApp. If you go to theyeshiva.net, join our newsletter, you could sign up, you'll get it. If not, come to theyeshiva.net and they'll have the Zoom on the page. So before the event, they'll have, I'll tell them to put the Zoom on the page in the comments so you'll be able to link and go onto the Zoom. There'll also be live questions tonight. Um, when do you say we should try to understand and when should we not try to understand and how does this work in relationships? Okay, great question. I think it works in relationships also in a very profound way because even though our spouse is not God and should not be considered God, (laughs) nonetheless, I think there's a concept where I have to respect your experience even if I don't fully understand it, and that's fine. It's called respect, respecting the space of another person and really tuning into where they are. And I may understand it, I may not understand it. So I think there's a certain element where I could appreciate the fact that I don't understand it, and I don't have to. I don't have to wrap my brain to understand your moods and your emotions and everything that you're going through. I can just be there. I can be present for it. Obviously, in the case of God, that presence means knowing that there's a plan that's beyond me. And there's a mystery here that I don't fathom. And that's fine. But I think in all relationships, we need an aspect of that. Now, when should we try to understand things? When we could understand things, when something is given to us to understand, we should try to understand it. Our brains are blessings. Our brains are tools to be used constantly. Our brains should not be squandered and wasted, and our brains are not negative. We we cherish wisdom and we cherish understanding. But there comes moments in life when we can't wrap our brain around reality. Most of reality we can't wrap our brain around. You know, I spoke yesterday, we had a sheer... <laughs> the revolution of the Alter Rebbe in Oyrein Saif, Pasi Lagani 5722, number two. If you, if, you, uh, if you have a chance, try to learn it. It's very powerful. The revolution of the Alter Rebbe about Oyrein Saif, the light of infinity. It's on the yeshiva.net. Pasi Lagani, 1962, class number two. So he spoke about the fact that most of, you know, light is what allows us to know the universe. But most of the universe is invisible because we don't have the vessels to be able to experience that type of light. So most of reality, we can't wrap our brain around. We can't see it. So I have to have the awe and the respect and the knowledge that I don't have to have the knowledge. I'm okay that I'm not okay, that I don't get it. It doesn't fit into my box. doesn't fit into my brain. It still may hurt, but I don't have to grasp it. And even if I don't grasp it, I can be fully present in that moment, in that relationship. Whatever I could understand, I want to understand This is probably what I have learned most from all of our classes. To understand that we don't understand and to understand that we don't have to understand. It's ironic, but it's true. To really understand that you don't have to understand and really understand it and be fine with it. The way I understand it is that trusting is much more important than anything else. Maybe we can't understand Hashem. Maybe we can't always understand our spouse, but we can trust them. That's beautiful. 
Torah we do understand, pain we don't. Why? Well, even Torah, there's a lot of Torah we don't understand, trust me. Torah is infinity. So there's certain aspects that we, God allows our brain to grasp, which is, but the, the, the Torah has layers of infinite depth. That's why Moshe is in Gan Eden for 3,000 years and he's still learning. He's not bored. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, the Tanoim, the Amarim, what are they doing for thousands of years? They're learning Torah because it's infinite. It's godly. The divine is infinite. Torah is infinite. And pain is inf- pain comes from the place of infinity. That's why we don't understand it. Look in Tanya chapter 26, Alma de Iskassia. The motto is, let go and let God. <laughs> let go and let God. Sometimes I feel it's the opposite. We do understand pain. We don't understand Torah. Okay, you see? <laughs> different people experience different things. What, what he meant was that we don't understand pain in the sense that we don't understand the reason for so much of the pain that we or people experience. Beautiful questions, my dear friends. Beautiful questions. I wish you all a beautiful day. Sending love and blessings to each and every one of you. May you have an uplifting, inspiring, meaningful day filled with joy, sincerity, earnestness, authenticity, and trust. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.